G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. I'm Rowan Connolly, uh, working again from the palatial Connolly Studios. And with me is my Footyology co-host down there pushing the buttons at Southern FM in Brighton. And uh, I speak, of course, none other than the great Mark Fine. How are you, Fine? Is that great as in... Grating, G-R-A-T-I-N-G, or G-R-E-A-T? You can make your own inference there. I would suggest at times both. There you go. I'm well, and we are emerging from the dark at a pace now, aren't we? Not just in a sporting sense, but we're finding out uh, day by day, certainly here in Victoria, Daniel Andrews is loosening the restrictions probably even ahead of his earlier schedule. So it feels good. It does feel good. Yeah, well, we talked about light at the end of the tunnel, and I guess uh, fair to say in the last week since we last did this, uh, a little more light is um, filtering through the darkness, and we're starting in a football sense, obviously starting to talk about, uh, well, we've got a start date. We now have some games to talk about, which we'll get to very shortly, and uh, even, and we'll talk about this as well, the uh, now actually some prospect of some crowds uh, being allowed to witness in the flesh some AFL football in a season 2020. So uh, good news, and uh, I guess on a general scale, um, in this part of the world anyway, things uh, looking up generally, not necessarily the case all over the globe, but uh, yeah, gee, it's been, um, there is a real feeling of emerging from the darkness, isn't there, in, in every sense, not just a sporting sense, but a, a life sense. Do you, do you sense that? I do. I feel like we're all bears coming out of hibernation, a little bit shaggy, a little bit sleepy, eyes sort of squinting into the light and re- Reconnecting with things that prior to COVID-19 were taken as second nature for us, almost taken for granted. And I think that might be one of the great upsides of what has been for certainly globally a tragic event and for and for Australians as well. But let's be honest and, and let's be frank, the current numbers of um, those contaminated with the virus and tragically those who've passed away are not uh, not out of kill to say with the annual flu figures here in Australia. So what I'm saying is that we've avoided the brunt of the pain and we might take some benefit out of appreciating those things that we missed so much during lockdown a little bit more, things that we took for granted. I know, I can tell you here here and now, I'm dying to put my ass on a restaurant chair and get served in a restaurant. I'm really looking forward to going out eating again. Yeah, I, uh, ditto. I, well, uh, nice segue because uh, one thing, and uh, fortunately we've been able to do this right through this dark time, but 
I am really looking forward to sinking my teeth into a juicy, delectable hamburger. Finey. They are uh, a, a staple of my diet. And where would I find the finest hamburger in town? It's a good point you make because Andrew's Hamburgers at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, have re- remained open and served the community and served them some mighty fine hamburgers, let me tell you. But there's a couple of just beautifully positioned wooden bench benches and tables out the front that are not currently active. And soon enough, we'll be able to sit at them again and enjoy that burger on premises. But I tell you what, you lose nothing by jumping in your car with an Andrews burger. And, well, if you're a better man than me, getting home and eating it there. Because normally, I've got the old burger in one hand and probably shouldn't do this. I don't think legally you're allowed to eat a burger and drive, but by crikey, the Andrews hamburger has forced me to do it on more than one occasion. I'm looking forward to gracing those benches out the front myself. Where would I grace them? 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. I tell you what, it's a pretty interesting suburb, Albert Park. You get a bit of everything. There's that sort of beachside atmosphere, some nice uh, upscale homes. And uh, I tell you what, there's a lot of homes around there that look like they've been uh, done up, renovated in uh, perfect style. And uh, interesting. Now, why would that be, do you think? Well, you're talking about the gentrification of suburbs such as Albert Park and South Melbourne, Port Melbourne, traditionally working class suburbs, but now very much prized real estate and highly valued. And of course, if you're lucky enough to have some property there, then you take advantage of it with the best possible rebuild or renovation. And you look no further than West Point Properties and Nick Spartels. He's got the track record. You drive down any number of streets in that area, and you'll see some of his beautiful work. Uh, Very nicely done. All right, uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, Let's get straight into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Okay, so some real actual football news to talk about, and um, I should point out we're recording this Monday morning, the AFL We'll be making an announcement uh, one o'clock on Monday afternoon. So all this stuff we're talking about will be confirmed. But uh, basically, we have the nuts and bolts. And uh, the good news is we actually have a round two fixture. That is the big news. And uh, here it is, hot off the press, the round two fixture. We will kick off on Thursday, June the 11th with Collingwood playing Richmond. And uh, that was a game scheduled for round two anyway, so nothing's changed there. Friday evening at Cadinia uh, Park, or GMHPA Stadium as it's known these days, Geelong taking on Hawthorne. Uh, funny in itself, because uh, I reckon the last time Geelong would have played Hawthorne down there would be, oh, I reckon it would probably be the late 90s um, off the top of my head. But uh, that, that's where they'll be playing. No people in there, of course. Saturday, we have uh, four games going on. Brisbane playing Fremantle at the Gabba. Carlton, early afternoon that game. Carlton taking on Melbourne at uh, Marvel Stadium. That'll be 4.35. A showdown in Adelaide. Port Adelaide playing Adelaide. And uh, that, of course, before those two teams fly to what will become a hub on the Gold Coast. And Gold Coast taking on West Coast in that hub 
at uh, Metricon Stadium. And then on Sunday, we've got GWS taking on North Melbourne at Giant Stadium in Sydney. Sydney will be playing Essendon at the SCG Sunday afternoon. And that was a game uh, originally scheduled for round two as well. And then St Kilda taking on the Western Bulldogs, uh, probably Marvel, Marvel Stadium as well. And that will be on Sunday evening. So uh, we're getting a showdown out of the road before those two teams fly to the Gold Coast. And uh, certainly a good kickoff with Collingwood Richmond and Geelong Hawthorne, although I am having trouble getting my head around the concept now being repeated ad nauseum of blockbusters because I just fail to see how a game is a blockbuster without any people there. But it's certainly from a TV perspective, it will be a blockbuster. So what do you make of those game games? Uh, fairly interesting menu. Yeah, it is an interesting menu. As a St Kilda supporter, what a game that is. The two, for mine, most disappointing teams from round one that had to stew on their performance for all this time, St Kilda and the Western Bulldogs. St Kilda, a game they seemingly controlled against North Melbourne, big unveiling of new recruits, and it went pear-shaped. And Bulldogs, much expected of them this season, didn't fire a shot against the Magpie. So two teams that would be desperate for redemption, and one of them will get it, and one of them will really be licking their wounds and well behind the pack. Yeah, no, good uh, good observation. I guess uh, <clears throat> also should point out here the fixture will be released, we're told, in four-week blocks. So 16 rounds to go. This will be one block of four weeks and then we'll have another three of these announcements throughout the course of the season. And that, of course, will give them fixturing flexibility, which no doubt we'll need as uh, the health situation changes. The other big news finding, I've got to say, very encouraging. Um, hopefully it's on the money, but the Herald Sun reporting that there is certainly a plan to get people back to the footy. Uh, when? Well, it'll probably be pretty late in the piece, and I, I reckon you'd be lucky to have this happening before about August, but they're talking about starting with crowds of a uh, maximum of 5,000, moving up to 10,000, and then potentially at the grand final, now scheduled for October 24th, uh, up to 30,000 people at the MCG. Um, how would this work? Well, credit to you. You actually alluded to this pretty early in the piece, saying, well, you know, if we've got a ground as big as the MCG, they could be suitably socially distanced with uh, uh, space between people in various rows and then space between rows. And if you've got a 100,000 capacity stadium, you have the uh, ability to be able to do that. And it would require a lot of organisation and staggered entry times. And it would be quite a bizarre sight to witness, I suspect. And of course, that would require a lot more ground staff as well. But I think we're all myself included, far, far happier with the idea of playing a grand final, at least in front of 30,000 people. It makes all the difference. Of course, won't tickets be at a premium? And I just wonder if that's the case, if they do what they've done in grand finals in previous years and cater <clears> to <throat> sponsors and heavy hitters. Well, you, I, and anybody else who's not 
tipped a whole lot of money into football won't be there. So it'll be little, it'll be little relief for the normal fan. Hopefully they can look beyond that and run some sort of ballot system that allows rank and file supporters to be the bulk of that thirty thousand, ten thousand, or five thousand. They have to. I mean, there's absolutely no way that that crowd can be all the. Um, the suits and the corporates, that would be the biggest PR disaster I reckon the AFL had ever been involved in. And that will be the first thing people will be asking, well, who gets to be among that crowd? And yeah, absolutely. It's got to be a ballot system and members absolutely have to be given priority and there will be civil war if that, uh, there are not least equally catered to um, alongside the sponsors and the various heavy hitters that, uh, hang around the fringes of a footy club. But, um, yeah, look, great. I really, really hope that gets up. I mean, yes, okay, at the end of the day, it's an aesthetic thing. Um, but I think it would be so important for the players to imagine the buzz they'll get out of it after a few months of playing before nobody, at least to have some people there appreciating their work. It, so It would be a very odd well, way to watch football, though, wouldn't it? You know, you've got a crowd, you've got, you've got a crowd but not... You know, the the noise and energy generated by a crowd is done by groups of people in close proximity. I've I've been to games where people are spaced out. They're different beasts. Well, I was going to say, in a way, it'd be turning the clock back a bit. I mean, in the days of suburban footy, we'd often, you know, two underperforming teams late in the season. You could get some very sparse crowds. I know you talked about watching... Fitzroy play uh, was a Fremantle at um, yep. Western Oval. Uh, I remember covering a St Kilda Fitzroy game at Victoria Park in 1985. There were so few people that the ball went over the fence and Fitzroy's Leon Harris had to jump the fence and retrieve the ball. Um, so, uh, yeah, that will be interesting in itself. But um, all in all, pretty good news there. Now, another... Um, this not so good news, but we're seeing an increasing list of uh, club staffers who have been stood down. And, and uh, when this horrible thing started or the season went on pause, there's something like 80% of employees at both the AFL and clubs were stood down. And, um, and you know, some hugely important staff among them. And uh, I don't want to make this sound elitist or whatever, but when you start reading about some familiar names who are actually in the football departments and coaching staffs of clubs, it sort of makes it a bit more real. And, and when clubs returned to training a couple of weeks back, um, a lot of these names sort of started dribbling out. So uh, there are a couple at North Melbourne, assistant coaches there, Brendan Wycross and Jared Rivers. They weren't there when the Roos started training again. And just in the past week, a, a few more names that have bobbed up. Uh, Buddha Hocking, Gary Hocking at Collingwood, who is the VFL coach. He's not there. He's been work, working on a, uh, a farm property, I think. Uh, Luke Ball at Essendon, uh, involved with the VFL. He is not back at the club as they've resumed. And uh, another one, sadly, uh, having you know just sort of emerged from the game and would be a fantastic coaching addition, I'm sure, Dale Morris at the Western Bulldogs. And he's been stood down as well. Luke Beveridge saying uh, one of the toughest things he's had to do, uh, talking to Dale and telling him that um, 
there was no work for him when they resumed. So I just I guess that personification of the job losses sort of drives at home the extent to which this is hitting AFL clubs finally. It's hard to fathom, understandable in terms of VFL personnel because we wait to see the future of the secondary competitions and other football competitions and other sporting competitions. But, and I'm not, I'm being a little bit brutal here, had we come to a point in this sort of, and I know that there's the soft cap and, and that does inhibit clubs, wealthy clubs being just overly, you know, r- ridiculous almost in their spend. But what I'm suggesting is, the games will go ahead. The football will be maybe even better for being less coached. And do you think maybe we were travelling a little bit fat prior to this? That there was a sense, there was an excess in terms of uh, the coaching and almost the um, preparation had become overdone. Oh, I think there's certainly been that observation made, although interestingly, I don't think anyone would dare have made that until the situation hit home. Um, and uh, I guess the you know the $64 question will be how long that is the case for, because you know as we've discussed a bit, the economic ramifications of this are going to continue long after the health concerns have abated. Um, so. Yeah, I think in a purely football sense, it might help the product. Um, I mean, what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, and take the individuals out because when you hear names, any names of of individuals losing their jobs uh, across a spec- across the broad spectrum of industries, it, it's heart it, you know, it's gut gut wrenching and heartbreaking. But I reckon Australian rules football or the AFL had a lot of fat to cut before we'd ever see the product being. Uh, adversely affected. A lot of fat to cut. Yeah, but I mean, like, you've never heard anyone talk about, look, the only way the game's going to get back to looking how a lot of people think it should look is by actually reducing staff, isn't it? I mean, you're sort of actively uh, torpedoing the store of knowledge that you have. It's a pretty sort of dramatic way of getting back to basics, isn't it? It is. certainly not the way I thought we would do it. It is, Rowan, but sort of an ode to that was the move a couple of years ago to inhibit the use of runners and restrict them to only after goals or, um, yeah, I think only after goals really during quarters. So that that was an ode to the overcoaching that virtually plagues the game. Yeah, well, runners, that's a pretty good example actually. And I must say when that happened, it's a good example of, you know, how, how much it is in the game offers only a very incremental advantage um, to anyone, really. And runners, I always thought, you know, what difference in actual, you know, scoreboard terms does a runner ever make? I mean, I, I'd say it's minimal. Yeah, but it just takes control out of the hands of coaches and they started fretting, didn't they? They don't like, yeah, well, they don't like to have their their um, ability to control. control and and really, you know, manipulate the game, taken away from them, because they had been afforded such a, a luxury as runners. Other sports, 
and I've got to say, fans of other sports are, are absolutely dumbstruck at the notion that messages can be sent out through the game willy-nilly. It, it, it's alien to most other sports. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, like tennis is a sport where if there's even the suggestion that a person's getting coached from the sidelines, uh, all hell breaks loose. I'm just going to say quickly, you mentioned control. Whenever I hear coaches and control, the first person I think of is Ross Lyon. Just so happened, I was uh, going down that old YouTube rabbit hole last night and watching a compilation of the great goals in football history, and uh, I'd forgotten this one. An absolute corker of a goal by Ross Lyon for Fitzroy in a game against Richmond at the MCG where there was about three separate efforts and a lovely bit of evasive work from him and a beautiful shot on the run. And, I, well, you can't help but think, uh, gee, perhaps Ross was playing on his instincts. If only uh, at times towards the end of his coaching career, he'd done that a little bit more with his Fremantle players. He was a very good footballer, uh, Ross Lyon. Oh, he was very tough and yeah. courageous, but you know, yeah, he had some real natural skill as well, which I think a lot of people sort of would be surprised to hear. Those uh, younger members of our audience. All right, another thing that's cropped up in the speculation, and of course, it crops up annually, but the context is a bit different this year. It is about the prospect of a night grand final and uh, I've got to say uh, I'm just getting that feeling that it is actually going to happen Um, what's my barometer on that well I know Gary Lyon on SEN the other morning asked Tim Watson about it Tim of course employed by Channel 7 uh, in both their news and football coverage so he has uh, very well connected there and uh, he was quite matter of fact about it he said yes I think they will um, and, of course, you know, if there's going to be no crowds or small crowds at least, although that makes a difference, doesn't it, um, you'd think this is a time they would try it on. And uh, interestingly, finding it's funny how these stories are always written uh, around the same time. A newspaper story to that effect cropped up in both, almost simultaneously, in fact, The Age and The Herald Sun, almost like someone senior in the media section of the AFL had a quiet word to senior writers of both papers and filled them in on what would be likely to happen about the timing of the grand final. That, of course, was uh, accompanied by commentary saying, well, this could be it, but uh, oh, it won't be It won't be gospel. It won't be locked in because it's a very different year and they'll just try it and have a look and we're not committed to it. And to that I say, absolute crap. Once it happens... We will never go back. And this will be the pretext for doing it. And do you really think that either, well, certainly the broadcasters are going to turn to the AFL and say, nah, well, the numbers weren't uh, that much higher than they would have been. It's not really worth stuffing up 120-odd years of tradition. No, they are never going to say that in a month of Sundays. And even if the figures aren't fantastic, they will somehow spin them to make it appear they are. So uh, much as I shudder at the thought, I think once it happens, we are locked into that time slot forever. How do you see Yeah, look, you know, the many well-suited men and women who work for the AFL straight out of uh, corporate, the world of you know, corporate business or out of useless degrees from university, 
that have come to the AFL and can offer little more than just reimagining the sport in various forms. May it be the website, may it be pre-match entertainment. They're getting paid and their imaginings sometimes are reality. Luckily, in the past, they've basically been forced to keep their hands off the actual game. But this extraordinary season has allowed them free reign at re-engineering the game of football. We now have shorter quarters and the rationale, but I don't like that. I didn't like them in round one. I don't like them and I don't like the rationale behind them because it still doesn't make sense to me. Uh, the first four weeks of football, I think, will be played over four weeks. The other problem is with shorter quarters, we've got a lot of players not playing at the moment in the AFL, just sitting around without any VFL. We need a turnover of players. The idea of shortening the game to extend the football playing ability of the players doesn't do much for anybody outside the top 22. So I think that's a stupid one. Uh, Everybody plays each other once. That's been forced upon us. Not a bad thing. Okay, that's good. And a night grand final, again, opportunism in this extraordinary year to thrust something down our throats that, look, I don't mind a night grand final, but I think the popular vote is against it. And it shouldn't be done until the public is well and truly behind it. But you know what? Sometimes you really need to watch what you wish for because this push for a night grand final, seemingly an obsession of TV broadcasters at Channel 7, will come back and bite them in the ass because it'll be all about the spectacle and even if they get 30,000 there, it's not going to look great. So if that's going to be their showcase of a night grand final, boo to you with knobs on, you're not going to get much public support because it's just not going to look good. Yeah, and uh, very good point on the shorter quarters too. I mean, I, I did say after round one, I, you know, it, I was surprised at how little difference it felt like to me. But the whole rationale about that has hairs on it. it it's just, it's come from the wrong quarters. Certainly hasn't come from supporters. And finally, I will be alluding to this a little bit later on and a certain media personality in particular who appears to be now driving that push towards permanently entrenched shorter quarters. And uh, in fact, speaking of media personalities, and we could be talking about the same media personality, uh, Eddie Maguire bobbed up during the week with a curious uh, intervention or commentary on the um, case of Jack Stephen, which we talked about last week. And fortunately, he's at home now and on the mend. But uh, still a lot of speculation, as was always going to be the case, as to exactly what happened in the events leading up to him being stabbed. And um, pretty curious to see the president of another club, although he was wearing his media hat at the time, although who just knows with Ed any more finey, weigh in on um, that uh, Geelong should uh, release exactly why Jack Stephen was stabbed and what happened and then everyone would stop asking about it. And uh, he was slapped down by Geelong President Colin Carter for doing so and I think quite rightly because uh, he, yeah, I mean, I appreciate at times it's difficult for Ed to separate the many hats he wears, but this was one where surely discretion was best exercised, and particularly when we're talking about someone who's had issues with his mental health. So 
I thought it was fairly unbecoming of the Collingwood president. There's a head under that hat and there's a brain in that head. And that brain should be able to understand that even if you're working on radio and covering a, a topic of the day and one that was making headlines, the Jack Stephen incident, that you are still always 24-7 the president of an AFL club and you need to tread carefully. Now, this is simply not any territory that should be entered by anybody from another club. And Ed can't say, well, look, in this instance, I wasn't the Collingwood president, I was the hot breakfast host. It just doesn't wash because it's not reality. It doesn't play out like that. And I'll tell you what, he certainly knows what hat to wear and how to tread that line when it's a matter concerning the Collingwood Football Club. You know, put the tough question to him about Collingwood on that program and he'll sidestep it as as well as Scott Pendlebury in heavy traffic. So he knows how to avoid certain questions when it relates to Collingwood, but seemingly Scott his teeth stuck into a matter that was absolutely no, it, it was a no-go zone for somebody who's president of the Collingwood Football Club. Sorry, bad play. Yeah, no, here, here. And uh, just on that thing about the hats he wears, now I I have got a uh, a rant stored up to this end, finally, but um, those comments about Jack Stephen, I think actually came out of a forum that the Herald Sun organised. It was a virtual roundtable discussion about where the game's at or where sport is at. And it involved, I think, Jared Wakeley, uh, of course, was one of... <laughs> what does I say, of course? Um, he bobs up everywhere. It was one of the commentators used. We knew he was there as a, a media person. Uh, but the story that accompanied this said, a, a uh, gathering of administrators and media personalities. And Ed was one of those. So uh, it's almost got to the point where that story need to clarify. Was Were we uh, being graced with the presence of Eddie Maguire Collingwood president or Eddie Maguire uh, media commentator? And um, uh, it, it would have made a significant difference to the, uh, I guess, the wisdom of making those comments about Jack Stephen, who, incidentally, we, of course, send our best wishes and hope that he's on the mend. It sounds like uh, the Geelong people are rallying around him, which is good to see, and hopefully we'll see him out there sooner than later. All right, uh, that is enough news on the football front. Uh, let's just turn down the temperature a little bit, Finey, and talk about uh, some life matters. Life Hacks, building a better world. Okay, well, uh, I reckon today I'm talking more football. I feel like I've actually got more footy to talk about in my repertoire than I have for some time. So my first life hack today, Finey, is about footy. And uh, it's a area we've discussed uh, a lot. But can't, and as you know, neither of us can get enough of footy nostalgia. And I think a lot of our listeners are of that ilk as well. And we've talked before about the, I guess, failure of the game uh, and its administrators to properly curate the um, video history that we do have. Um, of course, you know, with the demise of the name again DVDs and uh, the AFL, I'm told, digitising its archives, but uh, that is quite a lengthy and costly process. So I don't know sort of where that is right at the moment in these difficult circumstances, but 
a lot of uh, a lot of it has been left to hardcore fans of the game, and uh, thank God for YouTube. We've talked before on this show about uh, a YouTube channel run by a guy who goes under the name of Jezza1967, G-E-double-Z-A-1967. But um, I'd stumbled on another one the other night, finally, and of course you always stumble upon those things at about 1am when you're about to go to bed and uh, then you end up going to bed at about 3.30am, which is exactly what happened. But there is another uh, football... Uh, vintage football archival channel on YouTube, which goes by the name of AFL History, uh, except the logo is the old VFL logo. And boy, have they got a fantastic collection of stuff. Um, Lots of old grand finals, but in full, very good quality footage, uh, not just ripped off for TV. And in fact, like for, for example, the 1989 grand final, uh, I found it hard a few weeks ago just to find a full copy that was, you know, very clear of that game. Well, this channel has it. Um, and a lot of the grand finals too had the aftermath, which you don't get to see a lot of uh, when you uh, see them on the old footy marathons or even any of the recent Nostalgia Stuff TV channels have been running. So really enjoyed that. And there's various quirky things that Channel 7 showed at stages over the years or, or more recently Channel 10 and Channel 9 um, and some stuff off news programs and uh, there's some, gee, there's some fantastic stuff there and I've only sort of scratched the surface of it so far. I'll certainly be going back for another look uh, sometime later today. So if you are a connoisseur of vintage football vision, um, get on YouTube and uh, Jezzet1967, he's a gun, but also this channel, AFL History, um, which has, uh, it's got over a thousand subscribers, I think, but always room for more. So check that one out. I'm sure everyone will find something that they will really enjoy in an old time football sense. I'm looking forward to that. Great. That's good. Good news. Uh, Rowan, my first life hack is a very serious one. And I'm with some trepidation because it's a difficult subject matter. And I guess what I'm about to say is in a way controversial, but I believe uh, is based in logic and needs to be said. So are you happy to step through this with me? Because I'll be using you as a bit of a sounding board. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Go well, for it. Well, we know figures are coming out and it comes as little surprise as we've been thrust together in these near lockdown situations that there has been a disturbing rise in family violence as reported with physical violence, um, emotional abuse, etc. So we know that that's the case and um, the response to this quite responsibly has Mm -hmm. been uh, a series of ads that have been running on TV regarding the new dynamic and the stresses that appear as a result. Have you seen any of these ads? I have. I have. All right. And they're quite, uh, they're, they're powerful. They are powerful ads. Okay. I, I want to speak to one that was shown extensively on TV last night, and I believe it perpetuates a narrative that is not realistic. It sidesteps a, an awkward issue, and it misses an opportunity because when you portray a scene, the idea is that that becomes relatable to the people that are watching it. And hopefully those people watching it that 
um, could best be ben- could best benefit by taking action need to relate to that short ad. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Okay, so the narrative of domestic violence, and we know that in the case of serious domestic violence resulting in hospitalisation and tragically in death, overwhelmingly it's male violence against female partners or against children. We know that that is a fact. Uh, But the ads are are being shown at the moment speak to the um, possibly the genesis of, of these serious acts, and that is um, a burst of temper and uh, outrage, uh, a moment of, of outrage um, in the family home, precipitated by this close living of under these new circumstances. And the ad Psych- psycholog- psychological abuse. Well, just this, this burst of temper, and the ad shows something that is now sort of the, the, the narrative and that it's a husband. So the wife is at the kitchen preparing dinner, calmly, benignly. There's a child playing in the foreground and what who appears to be the husband comes roaring in. He's stepped on one of the kid's toys and he's completely lost it and gone, what's this bloody doing on the ground? Now, it's a highly irrational reaction to a toy being on the ground. And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but not only anecdotally, not only through common sense, but actually through testimony in cases of family violence. Uh, the, a loss of temper is not generally brought about by a totally irrational reaction to a normal situation. Family violence is an escalation of arguments, of aggravations between spouses, between people. But it's a very difficult line to tread and we seem to avoid it. It it obviously is too hard to portray a husband and wife arguing and that escalating to a point where the husband may become violent. Because I think in some people's mind, that suggests that there's culpability on both sides of the fence. But it's the reality. And the problem with the ad that is shown last night is that most men would look at that and say, well, that's not me. I'm not a complete idiot. I don't just walk into the house, step on a toy, and go berserk at my wife who's preparing me dinner. And as a result, they don't connect with that ad. That ad has very little relatability to the real world, but it becomes the narrative because it's very simple to paint domestic violence as furious males and totally disconnected, and I'm not going to use the word innocent because there's no guilt here, but totally disconnected and non-involved women. But that is not the reality. It's overwhelmingly an escalation of situations. And Okay, so, so what, have, what have, should they show? They should show a, a, an argument over money because now that becomes a very real problem in the household. What are you doing for work? What, what's going on? You know, escalation, escalation. And yes, then there is a danger of, of physical violence, which statistically falls on the male side, not exclusively. And that brings me to another point, And that is this sort of image and vision comes from the same narrow worldview that gives us the most ridiculous comment of all. 
one that I've heard parroted out often, and that is, there is never an excuse for a man to hit a woman, which is an outrageous comment, and one that simply should not be ever repeated or regurgitated or made to be the standard by which we live. Why would you honestly say a man should never hit a woman? That ex- does that? Are we excluding relationships, same-sex relationships, where men are violent to men, where women are violent to women, and the less common but nevertheless existing women violent to men? Why make a distinction of man? A man should never hit a woman in a domestic, you know, in talking about domestic violence. Surely the, the message is there is no place for physical violence in the home. Why do we? Uh, yeah, yeah. Why do we yeah, draw? No, why, I... why are we drawing distinctions in this world of modern families? No, I think that's a reasonable point. I, I guess I, I, I think that the intent of people saying that has been honourable enough, and that is that the overwhelming percentages of domestic violence victims are women at the hands of men. But, um, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, I, I'd say this, too, just to your point about the um, uh, efficacy of that ad, that there was an ad on a while ago, and I don't know if you saw this, but there was a group of guys, mates, sitting around a table at the pub, and uh, one guy's phone rings and he picks it up and it's his wife and he starts sort of, making gestures about, oh, she's on my back again. And he's he starts sort of humiliating her on the phone, saying, oh, geez, you're stupid. And the other guys are sort of blanching a bit. And he just keeps it up and gets off the phone, goes, oh, God, what an idiot. And the other guys tell him off um, and, you know, say that makes him feel uncomfortable. Have you, have you yeah, yeah. seen yeah, that? Yeah, that when rings the bell. Well, I, I thought that was quite effective um so yeah a more more real world situation yeah well i I, you know i I think that there's you know a lot of the abuse isn't necessarily so obviously physical there's you know the threats of violence and the psychological intimidation and um I, i see what you're saying about that ad at the moment being a very crude sort of example of it i i would say in defence of them, I suppose, that, you know, how do you capture all the nuances of the escalation of that situation in a 30-second commercial? It's got to make a point. It, it, it does. Quickly. It does. But but to portray f- this family violence or, or physical or intimidatory um, explosive anger as the... As the um, the position of totally irrational men who are just... Ob- the person portrayed in that ad would have serious anger issues, is totally irrational, and has some sort of uh, personality disorder, honestly. To completely go off your rocker, what's a toy doing on the floor? That's where toys are, mate. It, it just... Yeah. It speaks It speaks to a a world of, of um, you know... Neanderthal men dragging women around by the hair and belting the life out of them for no good reason. There are people that do that, and they are savages who should be incarcerated. But there are also people, more people, who are unable to control themselves after real-life situations of 
of, of you know, as I said, of disagreement between couples. And no men, very few men are going to relate to a psychopath. More men will relate to the other situation. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I understand the point you're making. I, I think it's, I think there are some valid points there, and it's a, you know, it's a conversation maybe we need to have. Maybe uh, we're just sort of uh, tiptoeing into that conversation. All right, um, I am talking about football here, but I'm also talking about media. You may re- uh, remember finding, I think, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the um, this whole thing that newspapers have about patting themselves on the back about revealing pieces of information. Uh, so-and-so revealed to the Herald Sun or the Age or as revealed. Um, and I think it's a complete wank and it drives me insane. And I can't help but notice, Fanny, maybe we're giving ourselves too much credit here, but since we mentioned that, that uh, the ante seems to have been upped almost to the point where I'd suggest certain people are now taking the piss um, this is a ridiculous tendency in newspapers. Uh, the punters don't care, but this is from, I read, I mentioned the Herald Sun story before, which quoted the round two fixture. This is from that same story, Fanny, and uh, I didn't mention names the other week, but I will mention them today. This was a story co-written by John Ralph and Jay Clark in the Herald Sun. Listen to this bit. The Herald Sun can reveal that Collingwood will play Richmond and Geelong will face Hawthorne when football returns for round two starting June the 11th. The Cats have struck pay dirt in, a, in their bid to host every game this year at Geelong with a blockbuster round two clash against Hawthorne at their home fortress. The Herald Sun can reveal that the AFL has handed Geelong a huge advantage against its arch rival after 27 consecutive MCG clashes. In further revelations... The Herald Sun understands Carlton will host Melbourne in a Saturday twilight clash at 4.35 in round two. Three times in the space of four paragraphs, the Herald Sun can reveal and in further revelations. This is what news is about, boys. It's a news story. You're supposed to reveal stuff, for God's sake. Don't Seriously, don't you listen to that and think they're taking the piss now? It's... Utterly, uh, that is such. It's a wank. They just have to be called on it. Exactly, you know. Well, okay, I'm calling I, him, and and let me let me stress here. I like Ralphie. I like Jay. I, I like and respect their work. But Ralphie, come on, Ralphie, you've been doing this a long time. I suspect someone's told you about this, and you've gone right. Well, I certainly hope that's the case, mate. Because read it back. If that isn't the case, it sounds bloody stupid. And let me stress here. I know people will be sitting here thinking, oh, yeah, you just pot the news corp again. The age. The age seems to have up the ante too, funny, because in their story currently online about the fixturing, they say a clash between Victorian heavyweights calling Richmond will reopen the season uh, the confirmed on the confirmed restart date of June the 11th, as reported by the age last week. And then the next paragraph. As reported by The Age, the AFL is also considering a meeting of arts rivals Hawthorne and Geelong for the Friday night slot. Two times in two paragraphs. Yes, as reported by The Age. That's your job. That's what you're doing. That's what news is. It's the reporting of facts that we didn't previously know. You don't have to tell us every time you reveal a new fact that you're revealing it. We understand that. It's implicit in you reporting the news. 
and that was in a story by I think Jake Nile, and it had a second by like uh, Sam McClure. I think. Come on, guys. I, now I know journo's aren't very big on sort of saying, "Oh yeah, I do listen to this" or "I did hear that." Although curiously, they seem to have listened to something when they're slapping it down. If you guys are listening to this, you can give me a call about it. But it makes you look like a bloody bunch of tossers. Seriously, stop it. Excellent pre-rant rant. Okay, yeah, I'm just getting warmed up. All right, you're yeah, next. Well, you know, maybe we need to redo our footy segment on this program and every time when you were going through the round two fixturing, you should have said, footyology can reveal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. As uh, reported previously in footyology. Yeah. Okay, well, footyology can reveal that last night I was watching TV with my, with my wife. And this sort of communal let's watch something together has definitely become one of the positive byproducts of the lockdown. And we now, you know, look through, and we've got Netflix and Stan, it's all connected to the TV. I don't know how it works, but it does. Uh, So we watched a program on the recommendation of my daughter, who this has been highly acclaimed as the first classic piece of TV for millennials which really should have had alarm bells going off anyhow. Uh, after one and a half episodes, which lasted about 30 minutes, about 25 minutes an episode, so after about 30 minutes of watching, I do you recuse yourself? I removed myself from the room because I said if I watch it anymore, it just become, I'm creepy. For a 55-year-old man to watch normal people is creepy. Normal people is an Irish television program it deals with two youngsters from doing their last year of high school both very intelligent uh, one's a, a successful you know very mr popular the other one's a bit of an outcast but they seek find common ground through a shared higher level of intellect than their classmates and basically most of the program is either condom clad sex or the angst that children vomit up after having condom-clad sex. And for a 55-year-old to watch it, it's just bloody creepy. Except something happens in the first episode that is the best 30 seconds of TV I have ever watched in my life. It was surprising, brilliant, titillating, arousing, and I've got to say, I found myself excited to the point of you know, premature relation. Do you know what it was? No. The boy in this program, the main actor, the high school lad, is part of the school's Gaelic football team. So there's oh, right. there's thirty seconds of Gaelic football highlights. And he they're they're down the score's one thirteen to one eleven. You know how they score there. And with yeah, seconds to yeah. play he grabs the ball now, it, it turns out the actor actually is a very good Gaelic football and plays in the GAA. Had to put his burgeoning Gaelic football career aside to uh, continue acting. But he sidesteps a couple of people and slams it past the goalkeeper into the goals for a goal and wins them the game. And then they flash to the scoreboard. And you know what the scoreboard says? MH National U. One thirteen, St Kilda, two eleven. The school they go to is called St Kilda, and he plays for St Kilda. 
And they won. And they won. And then was it a grand final? Oh, it was. It was the big game, you know. Uh, that would have been a parallel universe. Correct. But I just couldn't believe And you know what the crowd were yelling after the goal? This is unbelievable. Go Saints. No, Saints. Go, go Kilders. Oh, go Kilders. They're called the <laughs> Kilders, not the Saints. They wear well, yellow. Maybe and, that's a, they wear yellow maybe and blue. That's a cute, maybe that's a cue for some Kilder people to change the terminology. Can I just say, so that's called what normal people, is Co- it? Correct. Okay, can I uh, just to your first point about the appropriateness of middle-aged people watching young people having sex? Can I steer you clear of a show which I've got to admit uh, myself and Abby have been watching religiously and have got right into Sex Education? Oh yeah, because that, the entire premise of that is that it's about a young guy called Otis whose mum is a sex therapist, and he um, develops a business at school offering impromptu sex advice to <laughs> yeah, students. Yeah. Uh, and can I say, it, it is a really good show. It's um, uh, it's very funny, but it deals very sensitively with a lot of really difficult topics. Um, there's very, uh, you know, sort of, uh, and I don't mean this is a difficult topic, but there's a uh, one of the main characters is a gay uh, boy. And, uh, you know, there's lots of, he gets hooks up with a couple of guys and there's lots of, you know, young boys kissing and stuff. But can I just say for a show about sort of 16-year-olds, some of the most graphic scenes uh, of sex I've ever seen in my life, in fact, the, the whole show sort of begins with that, um, to the point where a couple of episodes recently, we're sort of halfway through season two, um, we have seen, uh, how do I put this delicately, the um, uh, the detrius of sexual encounters, or the uh, the result of sexual encounters, and I'm speaking of certain bodily fluids. Finding uh, it is, <laughs> I, I strongly suggest you stop there's watching. Not, hey, wait, wait. There's not there's not much that shocks me. Let me tell you. But a couple of these scenes, and Abby's had the same reaction. We've got ah, and um, yeah, it is. Full on. It is the most graphic thing I've ever seen, and it's about sixteen-year-old high school kids. Should you should you be watching sixteen-year-olds having well, sex? Because let me tell you, if you were watching sixteen-year-olds on a porn site, the police would be around. Yeah, no, true, true. All right, uh, got to keep this moving. Uh, last one for me, and a bit of a media flavour to my. Um, stuff today, uh, but I couldn't let this go without comment. I tweeted this last night. Uh, no, I didn't watch the full interview, but I did unfortunately stumble upon an excerpt, and it was 60 minutes oh, yes. last night. A big profile on the one and only Kyle Sandilands, the interviewer, none other than Carl Stefanovic. And uh, I was, of course, I didn't watch it. I've watched 60 Minutes for a long time, but uh, it bobbed up on my Twitter feed and I watched the clip, which was, oh, I think, about three minutes in duration. And that was more than enough. And I just thought, do you, is there a more perfect comment on the state of the current mainstream media than watching these two fat, bloated, overpaid, egomaniacs, narcissists, uh, wankers talking to each other uh, on a once allegedly great current affairs program. It was absolute garbage. 
and nothing addresses more the uh, incestuous nature of media today and the extent to which media today has its head buried firmly up its ass than A, the premise that Kyle Sandilands would be a worthy subject for an interview on an alleged primetime current affairs program. B, the interviewer would be Carl Stefanovic, who is like a, a, a much milder version of the same thing to the extent where you could work out who was bloody interviewing who. But, like, seriously, give us a break. I mean, fair dinkum, Kyle Sandilands is a professional media asshole. He gets paid $7 million a year to be an asshole, and he does it very well. I don't know what the attraction is. There's nothing particularly intelligent or funny about him or charismatic, but somehow people tune in on radio and listen, so he gets his $7 million a year. Carl Stefanovic is, uh, I've always found, a completely vanilla TV personality, again, without any particular wit or charm or something, but other media organisations seem desperate to talk about him, even if the public aren't necessarily interested. And here we are. This is a current affairs show that has broken some important stories over the years, both of a news sense and a political sense, reduced to that crap. I mean, the media is broken, finally, and that, to me, was the irrefutable proof that is broken. Carl Stefanovic interviewing Kyle Sandlins on primetime Sunday night TV. Absolute crap. Wasn't wasn't there um, sort of pre-promotion of Kyle Sandilands revealing a serious illness? Yeah, he's got high blood pressure. First of all, with Kyle Sandilands, if they want a professional radio asshole, I'll undercut him. I'll do it for a million. <laughs> and, and you know what? I, I I almost step out of step out of uh, march out of sync with everybody on this one but in a early morning tv sense and i rarely watch it but sometimes it is on i actually like carl stefanovic he's informal he's a bit cheeky irreverent and he's very comfortable in that setting i'm not talking about 60 minutes that is uh departure from what he's good at but he's very comfortable in the morning and plays he, he does quite a lot of stuff off the cuff and he's to me, a lot less wooden than a lot of those other morning hosts. I don't mind him in that role at all. Sorry, that's my guilty pleasure. I, for my last life hack, will reaffirm your faith in media because you've really, obviously, very upset with uh, football media, football journalists, and their can reveals, and Kyle Sandilands has almost sent you over the edge, hasn't he? I just have an objection to the job of professional asshole. You know, I mean, we've just got rid of Alan Jones. Hopefully this fat. Oh, no, I shouldn't mention the fat. That's not fair. But it's just a, a really unlikable person. He's actually paid to be that way. And people, some people seem to lap it up. I don't understand it. Anyway, go on. Well, it's like when Gary Sandlands went to Collingwood. Laurie Sandlands. Oh, Laurie Sandlands. Sorry, Gary. Laurie Sandlands went to Collingwood. It just didn't look right, did it? Okay. No. Well, I'm going to reaffirm your faith in media, albeit one man swimming against the tide. I went to South Melbourne Market yesterday. It was good fun, actually. Social yeah. distancing made it easier to do what I needed to do. Making a big paella tonight, or oh, very fancy one. Birthday paella for myself, 
my pet dog and my daughter's boyfriend. Okay. And I ran into a journalist. He is a thorough journalist. He he's a footy journalist, but he works the he works the you know less visited parts of football, far less visited. He's got a rock solid reputation. He's a true old style journalist. He has his sources, he gets his information, and he's just a he's not a, a, a social climber or Maybe ambition has stopped him from becoming a leading AFL journalist. I don't know what it is because he's very faithful and loyal to his bailiwick, which is the VFL. You know who I'm talking about? Uh, well, it could be several. Uh, Paul Lamy? Spot on. Oh, he's just a lovely bloke. You know, we, we ran into each other. I went to shake his hand. He stuck his elbow out and we did the elbow shake. Um, uh, he's a lovely bloke. I had a quick chat to him about the VFL. He says, you know, a lot of things are going to have to go right for a season to take place. And that spells big trouble for clubs, you know, those standalone clubs that have lived on the smell of an oily rag as it is, the likes of a Coburg. Um, and for so many players that rely on the VFL to get into the AFL teams that they're listed with. So it's a real miss in the machine if we don't have it. But uh, it just reminded me that there are some old-fashioned news hounds out there that don't do it for the glory, that get their sources right, give you a, give you facts that are irrefutable, and he's one of those men. No, you're right. No, good call. He, he, is, he is very good, and he is decidedly old school in that sense. He's done some great books too. He did uh, the book uh, about Freddie Cook was particularly good. Yep. Um, yes, it was. And... Yeah, look, I mean, there's there's been a long tradition of, uh, or back in the old VFA days, uh, Mark Fidian, for example, who oh. used to write for the Age. Well, um, his book on the clubs of the VFA, yeah. including yeah. those those defunct, I got a copy of that, and that is one of my prized possessions. Yeah, no, people that that covered the VFA tended to be uh, very sort of evangelical about it, and. Um, a succession of uh, both the Age and, and the Herald Sun when it was the Sun News Pictorial, a lot of us in the football media, the first thing we did in a footy sense was to cover the VFA. And I was lucky enough to cover it in 1985, which was the year uh, Ron James memorably played in the grand final for Williamstown as a 14-year-old. Yep. And actually, funnily enough, this is a bit indulgent, but Rhett Bartlett, KB's son, um, tweeted the other night, he's been digitising some old episodes of the Could Have Been Champions finding from back in the mid-80s. Super. And um, he tweet, I saw a tweet and he said, I'm staying to do it now. Here's one and um, includes blah, blah, blah. And my name was in it. And I had to sort of flash back and there was a period there where I was going on the Could Have Beens every week and it was when I was covering VFA and I'd be part of the VFA segment with Tony Winnett and Phil Cleary and George Stone. And um, so here I am sitting there the other night listening to these recordings of me as a 20-year-old talking, like 35 years ago, talking about the VFA. It was bizarre. I, I, I don't know that if many people have had that experience of listening to an actual audio of themselves from 35 years previously, but um, my voice was reasonably similar. I was, I was the same sort of smart arsy young guy. Uh, in, in fact, someone, I think Stoney mentioned something about my grand final. There was just a picture and a caption on the back page. And I said, well, if you had a read that caption, 
uh, you would have seen that it was pointing to my preview on the inside page or something, which so I was a little bit of a smart ass even as a 20-year-old. But, hmm. uh, yeah, there you go. I love doing the VFA, and a lot of uh, good footy journos got their start covering it. Good stuff. All right. Uh, that, that went a bit longer this week, but it was yeah. good fun and covered a wide array of topics. Uh, well, we've been talking nostalgia. I think we should continue the nostalgic flavour finding. And uh, go back in time to listen to some of our favourite music, watch some of our favourite movies and TV of a year in the dim, distant past. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Rightio, Fonny. Uh, what year? Well, it's my turn. And uh, I, w- I did a stock take during the week. And my first choice, uh, I didn't remember doing it, but we had done it. But uh, never mind, because there's still plenty of great years left untapped in the vinyl and video vault. And uh, I've tapped into one of those years, and it is from the late 1980s, Fonny. We are going back to 1988. Your, your uh, preeminent memory of 1988? Yeah, I've got one really strong memory of 88, and that is the sort of collision of two worlds. And I reckon that the bounce of the 1988 grand final was minutes before, after, or during Ben Johnson's stenozolol run at the Seoul Olympics. Uh, after, yeah, and but, I, I can confirm that because I remember sitting in the press box waiting for the start of the grand final and we all turned our attention to the big screen at the MCG to watch it. Yeah, it and was... what a feat it was for about two days. It, it's funny because because the grand final started shortly afterwards, focus went on to the grand final. But had it not been on afterwards, I'm sure as soon as that race was over, I don't know whether I'm putting memories in my own head, but I'm sure I thought that he was on. This was a joke, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether I'm I'm sort of confusing memory with afterthought or whatever. But I just remember. I can't remember ever seeing that race and not thinking he was on drugs. Well, I can't say I thought that. That certainly wasn't what I thought. So uh, you you might have been ahead of the curve there. Maybe. Um, my preeminent memory is uh, that was the year I got married, as a matter of fact. Gee, you got uh, married young? I did. I got married exactly a week after my 23rd birthday and um, uh, to a person I'd been going out with for four years by then. Um, uh, her name is Lucia, Lucia Gennorio, my now ex-wife, but uh, we're still very cordial with each other and uh we had a i think an overall pretty successful marriage for 16 years which produced two children so um i look back on most of those years pretty fondly uh but yep she was italian with pretty traditional parents so we wanted to live together so we were quite sort of uh what's the word not cynical but we it was a means to an end really so that's the main reason we did it but uh, it certainly was a bit different for the kids in my family. They weren't of the marrying type necessarily. Uh, all right, but let's start with music and um, interesting choices in this year. Uh, I'll kick us off. So 
Um, actually, I didn't find it necessarily a great year for music. Among other things, we had uh, REM brought out the Green album with Orange Crush on it. Um, Jane's Addiction released Nothing Shocking, their debut, Nothing Shocking. Uh, Rattle and Hum by U2, which I thought was a bit overblown, sort of put me off them a bit. Uh, a great Australian or Australasian band, Crowded House, released Temple of Low Men. I think that was their first. And uh, another of my favourite local bands, Fighting Lime Spiders, released Volatile. But arguably my favourite Australian band of all time came out with what would be a massive, massive album uh, included a song which became an absolute smash international hit. Uh, I'm talking about The Church and 1988 was the year they released Starfish, which had the massive international hit under the Milky Way on it. And um, it was sort of a reintroduction to, to The Church for me. I'd loved their earlier stuff. I loved Unguarded Moment and Blurred Crusade. But they did a fair bit overseas in the intervening years and they sort of slipped off the mainstream radio radar a bit. And I, I must say, I sort of lost track with them. And then I heard Under the Milky Way and loved it and went out and bought this album and absolutely loved it. And that led me to sort of work my way back through the stuff I'd missed, which I loved. And uh, I have been an absolute devotee of the church ever since, have everything they've ever done. They're still going albeit with an altered lineup. Um, but this, to me, is their high point. In fact, when I did the my top 20 album countdown, I had this at, uh, I think, number four. Um, it, it's just every encapsulates everything that's great about the church. Uh, so atmospheric sounding, very mysterious sort of slightly foreboding lyrics from Steve Kilby, which can be interpreted in a variety of ways. Fantastic guitar from uh, Peter Coppez and Marty Wilson Piper, who bounce off each other brilliantly. Probably arguably the best combination of two guitarists I think I've seen. Um, Kilby's bass playing is pretty handy as well. And this album, they they actually reading a bit about this. They sort of bristled about the recording of this. They went to America and it was produced by a guy called Waddy Wachtel, who was a sort of session player and and producer, but he crack the whip very hard with them, which they weren't used to, but I think they would concede it sort of straightened them up a bit. And uh, there's a real discipline to this record that other albums they've done probably didn't have. Jude's got some great tracks besides Under the Milky Way. Kicks off with Destination, which is a lot of in a lot of people's favourite church tracks. Blood Money, Lost, North, South, East and West, which is another of my favourite church songs. Spark, Antenna. Absolutely beautiful song antenna with mandolin in it. Reptile, which was a fairly big hit for them as well. A New Season and Hotel Womb, another fan favourite. It's a fantastic album. If all you know of the church is Under the Milky Way, please have a listen to this whole album. It is an absolute killer um, and a creative high point for a great band and a chronically underappreciated band in this country, The Church and Starfish from 1988. All right, Finey, your musical choice. You know, depending what mood I'm in, Under the Milky Way is my favourite Australian song of all time, depending what mood I'm in. Yeah. Be yeah it's no, a I've beautiful been, I've, song. 
I've heard a few people nominated it. So actually almost an afterthought for the album. It literally was the last song written uh, and decided upon for this album. Yeah, All right, you're up. Okay, well, likewise, as Starfish is the church's high point, then commercially, even though this uh, singer-songwriter, poet, um, man of modern observations was never hugely commercial in and of himself. This was his most commercial album and the one that was most successful for him. I speak of Leonard Cohen, who only passed away in recent years and was performing right up until his death in the late 80s. Not 1980s, his age in the late 80s. Um, I guess, speaking of the church, this speaks to my broad church of musical tastes because, again, it's another um, departure from dance music heavy metal, country music, all of which I like. Leonard Cohen is his own type of music, isn't it? It's, it's gloomy, foreboding, pessimistic, but actually quite funny. He, he sees the humour, I think, in his own morose world and plays on that. So uh, some of his most um, glass-half-empty lyrics are accompanied by quite airy, light choruses which is funny so on i'm your man there is the title track i'm your man which was uh, not a hit for him but well known first we take manhattan which has been covered by others people might yeah, know who, covered, I rem- who did cover that it was oh, quite a big hit for yeah somebody first we take man then we take berlin um my own favorite track of all time of his and remember he is the a singer-songwriter who wrote uh, Hallelujah, that haunting melody made famous by Jeff Buckley and, and, uh, and others yep. that yep. Is, is in many charts, you know, many listings of greatest songs ever appears in the top 50. Uh, it's a beautiful song, Hallelujah, but I love Everybody Knows because it has that real dark look at the world, but it's actually quite funny. Um and everybody knows the dice was loaded. Everybody knows the good guy lost. You know, everybody knows the game is over. It, it just, everybody knows. It, it, it's, it's a pessimistic look at life. But then the chorus is very light and floral and airy. It's quite funny. So I love everybody knows. And then there's Take the Last Waltz, which is even more, more sort of macabre. But again, has this underlying humour about it. So look, Leonard Cohen was much loved by uh, critics, by fellow musicians, by fans. He never got you up and rocking, but he often had you nodding in agreement. Yeah, no, really, I've got to say, that's a bit of a uh, a black spot for me, Leonard Cohen. I mean, like, if you had to, if push came to shove and someone said, what sort of genre is it? What is it? What genre would you describe it as? I, I would, I mean, look, again, his own style was foreboding and and ominous and eerie but it is almost spoken poetry uh, sung poetry isn't it um yeah you know I, I like a john cooper clark who's an english poet has put together some great pieces with music uh, for people who want to check poetry turned into music at its best effect the modern day it's john cooper clark listen to a track called chicken town which is just outstanding yeah. Um, but this yeah. is also poetry. It's prose with meaning, and then maybe almost secondary is the music. But he 
came up with some great music. I mean, Hallelujah is a beautiful song. It is. It is. And, uh, yep, Jeff Buckley did that brilliantly. I've remembered who did that uh, version of First We Take Ma- Manhattan. It's Jennifer Warnes. Really? Uh, yep, Jennifer oh, Warnes, who, yeah, yeah. Of, of course, also did that uh, duet with Joe Cocker, um, Up Where We Belong. Yep. Out of, was that out of Dirty Dancing? Anyway. Uh, yep, no, interesting choice. As usual, your taste far broader than mine. All right, movies. Um now, some good movies in 1988. We had uh, Who Framed Roger ha- uh, Rabbit, uh, Die Hard, A Fish Called Wanda, uh, Beetlejuice, which uh, I really liked that movie, The Naked Gun, one of the great comedies, Mississippi Burning, Mystic Pizza, the baseball movie Eight Men Out, and uh, Cinema Paradiso, a lovely little Italian film. But I have gone, believe it or not, there were two big baseball movies which came out in 1988. Eight Men Out was great, very uh, about the Chicago Black Sox, as they became known. But I've gone for the bigger mainstream success, and it is Bull Durham, finally, directed by Ron Shelton, who, in fact, was a baseball player of some repute himself, had a pretty decent um, minor league career. And he directed this, and it stars Kevin Costner, and uh, Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins, all of whom are fantastic. And uh, basically, it's about a uh, gnarly old veteran of the minor leagues, Crash Davis, played by Costner, who is brought in to um, play mentor uh, to the young up-and-coming pitcher, played by Robbins, whose character's name is Ebby Calvin Lelouch, uh, quickly nicknamed Nuke for the speed of his pitching. Um, and he's a young, pretty gormless sort of hayseed who has to be shown the ropes before he proceeds inevitably to the big leagues. And Susan Sarandon is, um, well, she's a bit of a groupie, to be honest, uh, but the perhaps you call her the team muse uh, in more kindly, more kindly terms. And um, she uh, has a penchant for hooking up with one star player in the team per year. And it takes her a a little time to decide who that player is going to be. And so she puts both Crash Davis and Nuke on uh, probation, so to speak, and makes her choice. And she goes with Tim Robbins' character, but uh, eventually realises that Crash Davis is the long-term partner for her. Um, but look, it, it's. I saw a trailer for it, incidentally, which is arguably the worst, most misleading trailer I've ever seen in my life. The entire trailer was about the romantic elements of this movie. Well, yes, it's a romance, but it is primarily a pretty funny comedy and observation on life and sport and baseball. And um, it got a lot of plaudits just for the authenticity of its baseball scenes, which uh, they put a lot of time and effort into and recruited a lot of serious baseballers to make sure they got it right. I mean, it's a big bugbear of sports nuts like us is when movies recreate sport badly. And it's been, we've, we've all seen examples of that. Well, this one gets it really right. And it's funny. Uh, it's well written. The acting performances are, are top notch. And I remember loving it when I, I first went and saw it, and I've seen it a couple of times subsequently and still really enjoyed it. 
uh, to the point where, and this is debatable, but it has been voted, I think, by Sports Illustrated. Uh, they voted it their number one sports movie of all time. So if you haven't seen it, it's, uh, yeah, it's a long time ago now, 1988, but it is a very funny and uh, very uh, engaging movie, Bull Durham from 1988. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I've not seen it. It's interesting, Rowan. You haven't seen it? No. Wow, okay. Yep. A bit of a miss. Go on. I might check it out this week, actually. You make a good case. It's interesting because there's a very strong culture in American movies. There's a very strong presence of sporting movies. And yep. unfortunately, it's a, it's a sort of a subcategory that a sporting movie isn't quite doesn't quite have the gravitas or... Um, pull of other movies so it's it, they're not taken totally seriously and even though there are some very good movies i think sporting movies became the cross to which kevin costner was nailed and never let down because between bull durham and field of dreams and tin cup he became sort of a, a bit of a, a lightweight didn't he yeah yeah no i think that's a, a fair point what was the um uh, dances with wolves yeah i mean uh, that's my the the one that buried him was Waterworld. Yeah, yeah. Or or, say, or, or sunk right. him. It sunk him actually. You're you're right about uh, sports movies. The one exception I think to that rule is probably Raging Bull, which uh, yeah. is very critically acclaimed as a, a serious piece of filmmaking. Uh, all right, your movie. Um, Jokes Wapner. Gotta watch Wapner. Have to watch Wapner. I think the quotes from Rain Man are as likable and ah. famous as the movie. Flay Quandus, Quandus never crashed, never crashed. It deals with the uh, extraordinary relationship between a slick um, sort of, uh, not a con man, but a, 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 a flighty type played by Tom Cruise and his institutionalised brother, Dustin, played by Dustin Hoffman. Um, uh, they are separated, long separated, and only uh, death in the family brings them together. Uh, the institutionalised um, Dustin Hoffman is an aut- is autistic. He's an autistic savant, but find would find it very difficult, certainly in the time that that movie was set, the eighties, to have any life outside of the institution in which he feels very safe. And, and to use a term of you, yours, what ensues is a funny, heartwarming, beautifully acted piece between these two highly, you know, complete different personalities, but brothers nevertheless, and that's what wins through. And there's great moments in the casino with... Um, Cruz taking advantage of Hoffman's savant abilities and using him to count cards. And in the end, love wins out, of course. It's a bit schmaltzy, but it's a bloody good movie. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And, I, I, you know, I've never seen it since initially seeing it when it came out, but I remember I, I liked it a lot. And um, I'm a very good driver, what, what, very good driver. Well, Let me tell you, know, you he wasn't. Good, a good uh, gauge of how popular that movie was is the fact that the term Rain Man has basically been incorporated into everyday uh, parlance, hasn't it? Spot when on. People, yeah. 
Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, you know, so what what greater compliment can you pay a film? Yeah, no, good choice. I, I did like that a lot. An enormous right, ad, TV. enormous ad for Qantas as well. It confirmed it, it confirmed throughout the world Qantas's safe flying record, which endures to this day. Thank um, goodness. All right, TV. Now this is going to be a favourite of a few people's, I think, and uh, you know, I it's easy to sort of say, ah, oh, it's a bit schmaltzy and. It probably was, but this easy to forget that this show was really a bit of a pioneer in terms of um, filming technique and the use of a narrator throughout the course of the show. Uh, I, I can't think of a... Um, I mean, people are very critical of uh, the baby boomer generation, but in terms of entertainment, this is the archetypal um, baby boomer fair and I'm talking about The Wonder Years. A very, very successful show ran from 1988 until 1993, centred around the adventures of a young teenage boy living in your classic white middle-class American suburb, deliberately not given a location. It was supposed to be uh, theoretically anywhere in the US. Um, The main character's name is Kevin Arnold, played very well by Fred Savage. Uh, and his enduring uh, sort of unrequited, no, not unrequited because it's it's a bit wax and wane, but uh, his next-door neighbour, um, of course, played by uh, Danica McKellar, Winnie Cooper, and his best mate, uh, Paul Pfeiffer, played by Josh Saviano, his parents, uh, uh, Jack Arnold and Norma Arnold, played by Dan Lauria and Ellie Mills. He has an older brother who um, picks on him a fair bit when he's younger, Wayne Arnold, played by Jason Hervey, and his sister, uh, Karen, who's a bit of a hippie, Karen Arnold, played by Olivia Darbo. And there is some link between Olivia Darbo. There's some uh, someone to remind me. It's not popping into my head. But she is sort of famous through other means as well. Um, and just to, to that effect, Winnie Cooper's, or oh, sorry, Danica McKellar uh, was had some hot competition for the role of Winnie Cooper. Fine. Are you familiar with the Wonder Years? Just before I go, into I am further? very familiar with it. Okay, so um, she had to beat some stiff competition to land the part of Winnie Cooper. Do you know who came closest to grabbing the role of Winnie Cooper, other than Danica McKellar? Winnie Mandela. No, but close. Uh, Crystal McKellar, her sister. And it was a toss-up between the two of them. Uh, Danica was the older, and uh, she got the role. But they were so enamoured with Crystal McKellar auditioning for the role of Winnie Cooper that they gave her another role in the show, and she became Becky Slater, who Kevin has as his girlfriend, a short-lived girlfriend, but he has to dump her because he can't get over Winnie Cooper. So they are sisters. And I saw on YouTube a video of the two of them doing a Periscope video from a couple of years ago um, with their mum. It was quite amazing. Anyway, uh, the Wonder Years talked about, uh, it, it's that classic sort of late 60s, early 70s time frame. And so through the eyes of a normal American family, we see a lot of important events, you know, like Vietnam and Nixon and conscription and drugs and, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, and there's a lot of pure nostalgia as well. And I just think there's a real, you know, a lot of people can uh, empathise with some of the school situations that Kevin Arnold goes through. And he's likeable. And, uh, you know, Winnie's likeable. And, and um, Pfeiffer is likeable. And, you know, this, yeah, it's, it's a bit toy in places. But I think what I get back to, that thing about the way it's done with the narration, the voiceover, uh, it's a very effective storytelling medium. And I think it worked particularly well in that show. And it was, you know, there were some really heartfelt moments in it. And the ending, I watched the ending last night. This is how hopeless I am. We talked last week about men crying. I watched uh, a short YouTube clip which had the final scenes of the last show. And I, I was bawling. I'll cry at anything, seriously. But uh, I really did like The Wonder Years. And even, you know, in my early 20s to mid-20s, I was a big fan of that show and used to tape it so I could watch it when I wasn't there and I was working. And uh, It really drew me in. And I think a lot of people around our age did similarly. So that's my TV. What's yours? You know, that show Wonder Years, Dead Heats with... Um, uh, what's the one with um, Gary Coleman in it? You know, little Gary Coleman and what you're talking about, Willis? Uh, uh, yeah, well, that's the only one I can think of. What, what, what was that about? show called? Uh, was that, I don't know, was that Full House? Was that Different uh, Strokes? Different Strokes, that's it. Yeah. It, it deadheads with different strokes for the mo- most urban myths surrounding the, the program. Do you know the Wonder oh, really? Years? Well, Wonder Years urban myths that the father died on set. I think he dies in the last episode or something, but I don't think he died. No, no, he doesn't. No, no, they they the last episode refers to him that he the narrator does a throw ahead and he yeah. said that his dad dies two years after the yeah, end yeah. of the Yeah, show. that he that he yeah. actually died I think I think two years after the show was made that the it was a prediction that came true that the brother oh, okay. the the actor that played the brother um turned to yeah. a life of crime and drugs. But I think that's the brother yeah. on different strokes. Uh, this one might be true that um, that girl who played Winnie was a mathematical yeah. geni- a genius at maths and became a maths teacher. So, uh, gee, I didn't read that about her. But no, my, you might be right, but my, I didn't read that. My yeah. favourite urban myth surrounding the program is the fallacious one that Pfeiffer, Paul Pfeiffer, the actor who played Paul Pfeiffer, grows up to become Marilyn Manson. Uh, well, I did read about him because he uh, he dropped out of acting uh, because in the, at the in the final scene they talk about how he goes on to Harvard and becomes a lawyer. Yeah. Well, the actor uh, Paul Josh Saviano, uh, sorry, uh, Josh Saviano yeah. did drop out of acting and became a lawyer. So there you go. Uh, but he didn't become Marilyn Manson. The, All right. What's your choice? Okay. So my choice is a show that not a lot of people might have seen, but it was. Very good in and of itself, though historically very important, The Tracy Ullman Show. Now, The Tracy Ullman Show first aired in Australia in 1988, in the US a year earlier. She was a British comedian who went to America, uh, which was a pretty ballsy move, and got a TV program up. Now, good luck or good fortune, she surrounded herself with some real talent, both on and off air, that would... Uh, become big names in TV. Uh, most, probably the, the most famous is, well, it was produced by um, uh, Cas- uh, Caspi, Gabor Caspi Klusko, 
and they were a driving force behind a more famous program. But also, interestingly, her co-stars were Dan Castellaneta. So it was a sketch comedy program. She had a few different characters. Dan Castellaneta and Julie Kavner. And part of the program, uh, in, in fact, started in episode three, was a very rough-hewn, short animated bit called The Simpsons. And there were 48 episodes of The Simpsons on the Tracy Ullman show. As I say, rudimentary drawings, very primitive as compared to what it would become. But all the essential humour of The Simpsons was right there from the beginning. But completely irreverent, always in trouble, no respect for the father. The father, sort of dumb and oafish but lovable. The mother grating her teeth with despair at the hopeless children. Lisa, far more Machiavellian. Yes, very intelligent, but really naughty, Lisa, very naughty. And Maggie, even though she didn't talk, we saw her thoughts in a few episodes, and she was the most evil of the lot. Um, so Tracy Ullman show, famous in and of itself, a bit. Um, she's good. She still is a prominent actress to this day, Tracy Ullman in that very good series with Kate Blanchett about the burgeoning women's rights movement in the USA, co-stars in that. But more importantly, the birthplace of Matt Groening, the animator, um, his first foray into turning his cartoons into real life because it was a cartoon strip, The Simpsons, was on the Tracy Ullman show. Were the uh, voiceovers the same? Or all, the sa- all, the, all the same people. And there's good stories with them. Ah. As I said, Dan Castellaneta, who plays Homer, and Julie Kavner were part of the show anyhow. But they had to mm. get voices for Lisa and for Bart. And um, uh, the actor who plays Bart Simpson, uh, who voices Bart Simpson, um, I can't remember her name. Anyhow, she came in to read for Lisa. And she read Lisa's part, Nancy Cartwright, and she read Lisa's part, and then she saw Bart's dialogue, and she said, Bart's much funnier. Can I do Bart? And they were about to tell her, look, you haven't got the job. But they heard her Bart and said, you've got the job. So she was about to get told, she, you know, thank you, but no thank you. And she ended up having a crack at Bart Simpson and it's turned her into one of the richest people in Hollywood. Ah, nice. The Tracy Ullman Show from 1988. All right, we finish off with a footy memory, Finey. Mine's pretty short and sharp. Not a specific incident as such, but two major rule changes. One was the introduction of the 50-metre penalty, replacing the 15-metre penalty. And uh, my memory is that was pretty... um, inspired a fair bit of commentary because it was certainly a dramatic change and the consequences of indiscretions were uh, certainly severe and they continue to be severe and we often look at penalties now and think oh gee is that worth a 50 well you had to be very careful about infringing once a free kick further once a free kick had been paid because the consequences from 1988 became dire indeed and that one has endured but I bring this one up because it is the, I think, oh no, I think of the sub. I can think of two cases where the AFL has introduced a significant on-field rule that has been subsequently revoked. One was the substitute 
which uh, the the old green jacket, which was uh, repealed after several years, uh, a few years back. But the other one, and people sort of have trouble even remembering this, but it was in for two years from the beginning of 1988. When you received a free kick, you were not allowed to handball from a free kick. You had to take a kick. And that actually lasted uh, 1988 and 1989. So uh, a lot of people watch the 89 grand final. Uh, it's been on a lot recently. Have a look at it. Anyone who receives a free kick, you will not see them handballing because you weren't allowed to. And the penalty for a player that did do that, I don't remember seeing this happen, to be honest, but uh, if a player did handball from a free kick, the ball would be recalled and balled up. So you basically effectively gave away the advantage you'd won through a free kick. But it uh, people weren't happy with it. I'm, I'm not, I can't even really remember what the rationale for it was, to be honest, I guess to encourage more kicking, long kicking. But um, it didn't last longer than two years and was repealed and has never been seen since. So two major rule changes, one of which uh, endures to this day, the other one to speak with after two seasons. Your footy memory. Well, Queensland really, when I started watching football and through the 80s, that was no place to recruit somebody from Queensland, I'll tell you. They just, they just had no reputation for good footballers. Yeah, there were a few players you found out were from Queensland, you know, jolly good for them, but nobody that made you want to uh, sit up and sort of uh, pay attention or applaud your club. Oh, they've been out to Queensland recruiting. So when Hawthorne, you know, a club in the 80s, a powerhouse, made a big play for a full forward called Jason Dunstall, it grabbed a bit of attention. I don't know who came first, him or Dale Woodall, but Dale Woodall went to Collingwood and was an absolute, absolute, complete failure. Apart from one game, kicked nine in a game against Richmond. Yeah, I remember he kicked one over his head that was quite spectacular. But Dunstall was not the instant success that some people's memory might have you believe. It was... His first three seasons were good, but Hawthorne were great. So they weren't outstanding. He never topped the ton. And uh, sort of season two and three, around the 80 goal mark, I think, thereabouts. But it all came together in 1988. 132 goals for the season, seven in the grand final. He only played 23 games. He actually kicked double figures only once. He kicked 10 against North Melbourne. No portent for things to come because he would go on to kick 17 in 1992 against Richmond. So he could kick a bag, but it was just consistent eights, nines, sevens, sixes. A bad game was a, a four. And people, he built this fantastic reputation of getting out on the lead and sayonara. Whether it was Platten, Darren Jarman, whoever it was, if he was on the lead, there was no recourse for the fullback. And his vice-like grip and beautiful kicking became his stock in trade, and he would go on to become one of the greatest full forwards of all time. So I think it was the year that we we truly got a glimpse of the greatness of Jason Dunstall. And yeah, no, a very good call. Just quickly, he kicked three, uh, one bag of ten, three bags of nine, and uh, three bags of eight, a few sevens, and heaps of fours and fives. He did, um, I always remember, in 87, he actually ended up with 94 goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Played all, 
all by one game. Unfortunately, the game he missed was the grand final against Carlton and may have been pivotal to Hawthorne going under in that game. Had an ankle injury and couldn't play. Uh, my favourite Jason Dunstall story, and you're right about him not being an instant success, he was pretty good in 85, his debut year, but he, like a lot of teammates, had a very ordinary grand final day. Only had three kicks for the game. And uh, I still remember this going, turning up to work and I was working up with the Sunday press at the time and they, Sunday press shared offices with the Sporting Globe, the famous old pink paper with punch. Shane Templeton was a doyen of the racing riding circuit and a mad Hawthorne supporter, still is. So if you're listening, Shane, today, and you know exactly what's coming next. I will never forget his famous comment to me on the Monday after that grand final. He said... I will never go to another Hawthorne game as long as that bum, Jason Dunstall, is in the side. <laughs> oh, Shane. For Shane, he was quick to admit the error of that uh, prediction and uh, reneged on that promise, very fortunately, because he would have missed out on a lot of Hawthorne success had he stuck true to his word. But, uh, yeah, you're right. A very good call on Jason Dunstall. Okay, good segment today, 1988, 32 years ago. We revisited it. Uh, I think it's time we did some serious ranting, Forney. On Footyology, the rant off. All right, Forney, I've, uh, I've stored up with this one. And, and, again, a media theme, and I alluded to this earlier in the show, but uh, I cannot contain myself any longer and I need to unleash so are you ready to count me in? I love an unleash. One, two, it's up to you. I'm pissed off with Eddie Maguire, Finey. Now, I know that doesn't put me in exclusive company these days, but I've generally had plenty of time for it. Well, at least until he started turning into Donald Trump. This pandemic has had a detrimental impact on plenty of people, but I'm starting to think Ed suffered the effects more than most. How else do you account for the series of increasingly bizarre and off-the-wall comments he's making on the several dozen platforms on which he occupies inordinate space in our collective consciousness? And last week's effort was an absolute doozy. Eddie, it seems, has joined that increasing band consisting almost entirely of TV broadcasters and would-be entrepreneurs, but conspicuously absolutely no fans who have decided that our game is too long and needs fixing. Yep, that one again. Now, I'll deal with that spurious argument in a minute. But first, let me address how Ed justified this latest piece of madness. According to Eddie, and I quote, one of the mantras in Australia is, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Whereas in other places you say, if it's not broken, break it and fix it and make it better. Uh, Sorry, Ed, they don't say that. Literally nowhere in the civilised world, unless they're collectively off their heads on some sort of bizarre narcotic substance, does anyone say that? I mean, what sort of messed up logic is that exactly? Does a builder come up with a new house that's worked out perfectly and say, okay, this is just what I planned, people like it, and we're getting heaps of interest, but you know what? I'm going to demolish it anyway. Just on the off chance, I might stumble across something that's even better. Did Michelangelo finish painting the roof of the Sistine Chapel, sit back in satisfaction and go, wow, this is going to go down pretty well, but you know what? Bugger it. I'm going to paint it out and start again because I need to break things to make them better. Actually, while we're at it, let's cave the whole roof in and replace it with some terracotta tiles. If that is a proverb of sorts, it's just a meaningless word salad missing not only decent grammar but common sense. 
As for the entire premise of that ludicrous line, well, that's also bullshit. Here's another quote from Eddie. I don't think you can actually ask people to spend four hours at the football these days, going there in the middle of a Saturday afternoon on a weekend. We're competing against movies. We're competing against Netflix. We're competing against concerts. We're competing against people going to restaurants, he says. Well, for starters, unless you're hosting a corporate lunch or doing a media gig, and yes, I am looking at you, Ed, it's not four hours. In fact, a game from start to finish, including the breaks, lasts two hours and 40 minutes. That's shorter than most Hollywood blockbusters these days. It's probably shorter than most concerts, and it's a bloody lot shorter than any series you're likely to binge watch on Netflix. But here's the cream on this cake of crap Ed's made. In the next breath, he says, I think there's been a strong realisation, particularly from the players and the clubs themselves, and how important the fans are, that this is a game that is played for the supporters. Well, bugger me with a fish fork, Finey. Who'd have thought supporters were important? Incredible realisation from the clubs, that one. So to that end, here's a thought. How about actually listening to what they do and don't want for once in a lifetime? And what they do and don't want has absolutely nothing to do with shortening the length of games. I've literally heard not one single footy fan list game length as a problem. But go ahead, guys, shorten them anyway. You know one main source of complaint from fans? The prospect of a night grand final. They resoundingly don't want it. Never have. But are we going to have one anyway? Of course. Yep, that's how much the games administrators think supporters actually matter. Look, Ed, we know your I'm a real fan shtick has worked in the past, but it's starting to wear pretty thin. You can't be a man of the people while simultaneously shafting them for your own vested interests and keep getting away with it. And for God's sake, if you're going to come up with some sort of bullshit rationalisation, can you at least pretend it makes sense and isn't some absolute gibberish, even Trump in his maddest moments wouldn't have dared send out in another deranged tweet? That is a powerful, I enjoyed that, very good rant. (laughs) Very good. You know, I've got a couple of observations there, if I may. I nearly choked on it. Yeah, go on. uh, Observation number one, look, Ed's had a lot of thought bubbles over the years. This is nothing new. Do you, some of them great, some of them insane. Do you know my favourite one of his? Which one? The, oh, I know. Knocking down, uh, knocking down Eddie had and building a replacement ground next to the MCG. Was correct. That one? He wanted to have in the abundant parkland around the MCG an identical copy of the MCG, but one that seated 50,000 people. And then I thought, well, why not also have one of 20,000 people and when you're not playing football, you could store them like a Russian doll. You put the 20,000 right into the 50. That was just crazy, that was. Um, but I've got a piece of advice for the AFL, for Eddie Maguire, and for any game shorteners. And you know what that advice is? What? Twisties. I love twisties. Do you like twisties? Yeah, I like them. Yeah. I, I love them. And I'll always love them. But you know what? I'll never quite trust them. Because surreptitiously... In the same size packet, for the same price, every they, they started reducing the amount of twisties they put in there. So a packet of twisties will always be loved by me, but because of the surreptitious reduction, it'll never be trusted by me. And I suggest, even though it's not so surreptitious, they don't make this move of shorter quarters permanent because the resentment will be absolutely felt and conveyed by every football fan out there. Honestly, who wants less 
it's going to cost the same. Who wants less? No, agreed, agreed. All right, are you ready to go? I am indeed. All right, three, two, one, rant. You know, loosening of restrictions allowed me to take my children for a drive on the weekend. And as we drove, I remembered a time and recalled to them a time long forgotten, the time pre-COVID, a time when the only social distancing we ever saw was the protected area around a player who took a mark or a free kick in a game of football. I told my children of a place called restaurants, not food delivery hubs that sent out Uber or Deliveroo drivers, a place you actually sat down and ate at on real crockery with real knives and forks. Not all restaurant food comes in plastic containers. I told them of nightclubs and discos where men and women would meet, have a drink, listen to music and dance with each other. Hard to believe for children who actually know and believe that dancing with your sister is not a, uh, an activity of no importance. For my kids, dancing with your sister is actually one of three forms of dancing they know. The others being dancing with your brother or dancing with your mother or dancing with your father. They were sceptical. I don't think they believed about restaurants and nightclubs. But here's the kicker. As we drove, we passed our sporting precinct. And I pointed to the mighty MCG and said, this is where our national games of football and cricket were played. In front of crowds up to 100,000 pressed together. Besotted with the game, they would stare at the sport and never take their eyes or their gaze off this wonderful contest. Crowded in, cheek to jowl. I then pointed to the rectangular stadium where I said, lesser, more boring sports were played in front of 25,000 people like rugby league, rugby union or soccer. And I said, actually, their administrators must have foreseen the future because they did practice early social distancing. Many games played where fans weren't within a bullshot of each other. I told them of a game called tennis, where competitors from around the world would come to Melbourne once a year in front of giant crowds, musical concerts with crowds bursting at the seams. And you know what? Their sceptical looks from the restaurants and the nightclubs sort of morphed into looks of complete disbelief. What? Hundreds of hundred thousand people crowding together to watch sporting contests? No, they they were sure that the MCG and other stadium around there were either our version of the pyramids or the Stonehenge, an ode to the past or a, a signal to outer space. Certainly nowhere where more than three people would ever go at a time. And they were so convincing. Rowan, I'm not longer sure myself. Did we ever really crowd to watch sport? What are those buildings there for? I'm not 100% sure anymore. Was it just a dream? I can't remember. <laughs> Uh, very good. I wonder if we're going to uh, rename time. We're familiar with BC and AD. Are we now going to have uh, PC and, uh, oh, I don't know, yeah, post is P as well? I get, I, we ab- have, absolutely. We will refer to the time post and pre and post COVID-19. You bet we will.
I tell you what, I might go on a long holiday a few years from now when all the movies and uh, miniseries and stuff about this time start coming out. I don't think I want to relive it again so close to it, uh, having gone through it the first time. You can be sure that there'll be a movie or a book, Love in the Time of COVID. <laughs> yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, all right, uh, good stuff. No, good rant. Uh, enjoyed it thoroughly. Um that's about it for today. A uh, fair bit of ground to cover. Uh, hopefully, we've done it entertainingly. A uh, quick thank you to our wonderful sponsors, Finey. There's burgers, there's burgers, and then there's the best burgers. The old school, absolutely acclaimed best is Andrew's Hamburgers. Simple name, beautiful burger, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, and West Point Properties. Hey, we're coming out of a difficult time and you might want to come back into the light with a rebuild or even a new home. West Point Properties, contact Nick Spartels. Indeed. Thanks for your support, guys. Much appreciated. And thank you, our famously loyal audience, for your support. It is much appreciated as well. Hope you enjoyed the show. We're getting closer to a restart. That, of course, will mean the resumption of the twice-a-week episodes of this podcast. And uh, all looking forward excitedly to a resumption of hostilities on the footy front. Uh, Have a great week, everyone. Stay safe, wash your hands, and we'll catch up with you again next week.